0: Finally, we speak with Erica Payne, editor of a new book called The Practical Progressive, How to Build a 21st Century Political Movement. That's all on Wednesday, September 9th from 7 to 9 a.m. right here on KPFA in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, and online all the time at kpfa.org. We'll see you are listening morning. to KPFA, 94.1 in Berkeley, 89.3, KPFB in Berkeley, and 88.1, KFCF yeah, in Fresno. Ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rules. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light up. Drop the shadow. This is Jennifer Stone with Stones Throw. Today is September the ninth, two thousand and eight. Ah, August is gone, thank God. I hope the attack dog days are over. I don't think quite. They're just kind of hovering around my consciousness. Just, uh, and, you know, <laughs> watching a little bit of it. I, they're Actually, they're just walking around. Um, they're on the TV still. They're just repeating their speeches. They've cut it down, you know, to about one-third of the let 's see hers are twelve minutes long, and McCain 's are sixteen minutes long, and they just repeat the same um, stump speech i I turned off the telly there 's a limit to what a human being can stand uh the 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 Sarah problem uh has obsessed me i got to wipe it out i <laughs> I tried to write a little parody, and then I gave up uh the, what is it, the dysfunctional family uh has become, what is it, iconic. These are archetypes now. But Sarah, of course, is a self-righteous, imperious, down, downright narcissistic woman, yes, anti-elitist, creationist, gun-toting, pro-lifer. Uh, I don't know. I keep rapping about the kind of thinkers, you know, the feudal mindsets who think that their truth is the only truth. We know that this is all just pathology, psychology, but it works, folks, it works. Yes, that's the us or them psychology, for us or against us. Uh, Before she appeared on the scene, I had just heard barely that Sarah Palin was fearless, and I, I had thought, well, that's unusual for a woman. Maybe that's maybe that's a good thing, you know. Maybe she's got guts. Uh, what I didn't understand until I heard her was that she's not just fearless; she's uh, ruthless. Uh, she has no uh, no what is that? No self-doubt. Mm, she's consumed with conviction. She has a powerful personality. Uh, she's not just assertive, it's aggressive. She's a fighter. The question is, of course, what what does she plan to fight for? This is always the issue uh, her choices. All her life have been uh, those of the egoist, the drama queen. What is that, uh, She was... (laughs) she's a beauty queen, runner-up for Miss Alaska. Anyway, her choice to raise a fifth child, knowing that it would have Down syndrome, is the sort of decision that gives me pause. I don't even know how to discuss it because there's this problem of things being politically correct, you know. Do we choose life at any cost? I mean, you know, why not? Yes, go overboard, get a jump start on masochism. (laughs) Certainly, Sarah's 17-year-old daughter felt some need, conscious or unconscious, to emulate her mother. Children learn what they live, yes. The ambiguities of teenage pregnancy are very confusing, I think, probably especially to teenagers. Uh, Culture wars... uh, what is it it's not what they are things are not what they seem folks i mean you remember even barack obama reacted to the pregnancy of his uh, opponent's daughter as if it were something other than a blessed event uh said he wouldn't touch that no no of course what he meant was uh that of course the children are off limits as uh, sacred uh, so forth uh uh, but it implied you know that there was something wrong that she had done something uh naughty uh, you know i don 't care what what it is or why uh th- there's something in our Puritan culture uh whenever you deal with sexuality or with the life giving capacity of a woman um the gift of life. People get all nervous, you know. <laughs> it is, of course, a cause for celebration when we create a new life, but in patriarchy, it must be legal life, not of some fatherless, illegitimate bastard, my God. Uh, unwed mother, um, how can a baby be an outlaw? This stuff makes my blood boil, uh, it isn't any use, uh, I can say all day that a natural child is sacred, that nature is sacred, uh, my religion, but uh, I live in a profane society, a profane state. And, of course, uh, the bosses, the rulers, insist that a nameless child is an outcast. Now, history is beginning to recover from that injustice but it's not over yet uh look around the world is still what it is uh i don't know um i thought um, if sarah sat down and examined her life she might talk a little differently but uh i don't think she's in the mood to be self-effacing uh she's certainly angry Study her and see what it is in her heart that has metastasized. Uh, she's certainly determined to be John McCain's attack dog. He, he, he came out at the convention and said something about uh, the public being tired of all this divisive uh, bickering and yelling and uh, how, of course, he was above all that. <laughs> and, of course, he unleashed his pit bull. Uh She must enjoy the sarcasm, the sneering style. Uh, I don't know if she feels a need to make fun of Obama, uh, denigrate his ideals. Uh, I suppose it makes her feel superior to dismiss him as a new-ager, tree-hugger, elitist, you know, this thing about buppies whose cosmopolitan choices are an affront to her. down-home redneck blue-collar trailer park pretenses, <laughs> you know, it's pretty funny coming from uh, wealthy, wealthy folks, you know, they, it's like George Bush putting on the cowboy hat, uh, somebody called it the wine-beer divide, I think they've got it all bollocked up uh, Think of Barack and Michelle sipping wine and cappuccinos. Of course, Michelle Obama is from the south side of Chicago. (laughs) Poor Hillary had to have a drink with the boys. Uh, She, of course, is a recovering Republican. Uh, Where else on the planet do the people elect leaders who compete for a place at the bottom, a place at the bar stool, Brains in high office have always been anathema for Americans. Uh, (laughs) When I was a kid, I remember not understanding why Adelaide Stevenson was considered so pretty. Hmm. Even Al Gore. uh. Anyway, um, the longer I live, the more I discover that I have an inner elitist. A real one. Maybe I should uh, call it an inner critic. I have to confess that I think maybe voters, to say nothing of politicians themselves, maybe should have to pass some kind of basic competency test. You know what that led to. Uh, But, you know, maybe just something, the sort of thing that new citizens have to pass something that indicates that they have a working knowledge of the Constitution, uh, the three branches of government. It's a kind of civics test I used to give eighth graders back when civics was part of high school education. You know, the kids knew that uh, legislation was all very well, but all the president had to do was uh, sign an executive order, boom, anyway. I know that such tests would be used to shut out one group or another, manipulated, but... Maybe, maybe that people would be inspired to educate themselves. That has happened in the past. Old Thomas Jefferson recommended it. Hmm, University of Virginia. A utopian world where the philosophers rule. Big joke. The University of States, the College of the Constitution... The independent declarations of individual rights, that'll be the day. It's all nonsense, nonsense. I'm going to quit. I'm going to retire. Go to the monastery like they did in the Middle Ages and sit under my uh, shelf of books, you know. I was thinking the other day, I was leaving a whole stack of books lying around my apartment, leaving them open. And I was thinking, uh, was it Francis Bacon used to say that Some books are to be tasted, some swallowed, and some few to be chewed and digested. Uh, I guess there's never been so many books pouring out. uh, I keep handing them to people and the people say, well, I I don't have time. I'll just get, you know, get the information from the TV sound bites. Uh, I was thinking some books I look at and I... I go through and I look at the index, and for non-fiction that can usually tell me what I really want to read. Um, most people I know seem to think that if they pick up a book, they've got to finish it. Now, that's nonsense. The uh, first thing I liked about Bill Clinton was he said he never finished a book. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to finish it. Read the beginning the middle and the end, and then you can tell at once whether or not you want to keep digging uh Tasting, tasting books is such a luxury, you know. Go in the bookstore and just um, sniff around, and then when you bring things home, just put them aside for reference if they if they get boring. There's no, sense, uh, there's no sense torturing yourself. I think if you get pleasure, especially from fiction, then you probably have a book that you should swallow. Uh... Something that maybe you would like to complete. Uh, But if the first chapter doesn't just grab you, it's probably okay just to let it go. I I don't know why people are so apologetic. Uh, Some few books you need to make an effort I think maybe you should force yourself. War and peace, maybe, but that's like poetry. Maybe you need to read it twice. Try again. Uh, read it out loud. But there's no need to be intimidated. Uh, this week I've found so many things. That wonderful book, um, How the Irish Saved Civilization by Thomas Cahill. A wonderful. It's an individual take. It's not very accurate historically, but it's just full of goodies. It reminded me of D.H. Lawrence. He wrote a book called Studies in Classic American Literature. And it has absolutely nothing really to say about American literature, but it has an awful lot to say about what D.H. Lawrence thinks of American literature. And it's a hoot. Um, if you're afraid of the big novels... Go for the short stories. Uh, I found a short story last night in the 25th August New Yorker by Tobias wolf called Awake. Very short. Cut it out for uh, students. It was a stunning uh, take. It was about a man who awakened to himself, to self-knowledge. He was startled to discover uh, what a woman can teach you, what a lover can teach you, why we have relationships in order to find out who we really are. Tobias Wolf, awake. Again, you know, it's uh, so easy to put books aside when you uh, understand that the author has nothing to tell you, nothing uh, to reveal. I always think, when I pick up a book, whether or not it feels or sounds or if the tone is such that it meant something to the person who wrote it, you know, heartfelt, I believe, is the expression. Uh, of course, it helps that, that the author has skill in the telling, but skills, cleverness is not enough quite to make it worth your time. There's got to be something underneath another level some kernel of wisdom, what we call original thought, a way of seeing that might not have occurred to you, uh, a perception. Uh, I like what I call uh, rambling books. We used to call them, uh, let's see, uh, Victorian novels, like A Long Vine and then A Few Grapes. Today people try to write in bunches of grapes, you know, they try to get it all in there. I I like this sort of books, uh, oh like Don Quixote, you know. They just ramble along and then they get exciting for a while. Television has begun to try to put together a series like that. Uh if you have had a chance to see the new movie Brideshead Revisited, you will notice how poorly a two hour film does a job that was, let's see, in the television series, I think it was at least 12 episodes. It needed 12 hours to tackle Brideshead Revisited, and uh, it was a magnificent, rambling, contemplative, reflective story about human lives. Uh, It's not a two-hour movie. That's for vroom-vroom stories. Uh, Anyway, I think these days... Most uh, thinkers find themselves scanning the magazine racks to check out the zeitgeist, you know. Every week I go down the row and check out the magazines and look for the spirit of the age. You know, there'll be one or two long articles that you really have to read, mostly about politics. Uh, The library is a good place to check it out, Uh, go through the... Harper's, and I, I am an addict, the New Yorker I'm stuck with. I have to face it, uh, I count on David Remnick, the editor of the New Yorker, to tell me what's going on, and I need Hendrik Hertzberg, the New Yorker's best political writer. Uh, he's usually in talk of the town. He gives it the spin that I like the best. Uh, here he is in, let's see, the most recent issue, September the eighth, and he's talking about the, <laughs> the, the, oh, let's call it the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. Um, oh, let's see, he's talking about uh, being ameliorist. Now that used to be a word that meant. Uh, Uh, an optimist. It's the opposite of pessimist. I remember using it as a freshman in college and then giving up because it's such a silly word. M-E-L-I-O-R-I-S-T, ameliorist. That's the sort of person, unlike um, a pessimist, who believes that things get better if you try. My mother was one of those. She said that the, the mantra was to say, every day in every way I get better and better. Now, David Remnick, the editor of the New Yorker, categorizes Barack Obama as a That is somebody who thinks things are worth fixing. You know, <laughs> I love it. It's, it's very nice. It's, what is it? It's hard to write uh, about Uh, goodness, about people being wise or sensible, because, you know, you're afraid of being Pollyanna. Uh, Actually, uh, Barack's speech on race was his masterpiece. Uh, Let me read you just a little tiny bit of what David Remnick has to say about the conventional battles, he calls it, yes, uh, the battles at the conventions. He says, in the summer of 1960 half a century ago almost, Norman Mailer took an assignment to cover the Democratic Convention in L.A. And uh, he was determined to invest his protagonist, that would be John Fitzgerald Kennedy, uh, with a maximum sense of destiny. Yes, a time of destiny. Senator Kennedy, he wrote, quote, was unlike any politician who had ever run for president in the history of the land, and if elected, he would come to power in a year when America was in danger of drifting into profound decline. Yes, unquote. (laughs) That's 48 years ago. Same old, same old. Anyway, uh, David Remnick goes on to say that the Democratic Convention in Denver was not the, uh, quote, pig-rooting, horse-snorting, band-playing, voice screaming, medieval get-together that Norman Mailer described in 1960. But no matter how frictionless the stagecraft, no matter how Hellenic the actual stage, the sense of historic moment in Denver was far more profound than it was in L.A. 48 years ago. The nominee... Barack Obama and the would-be but not quite nominee Hillary Clinton did battle with central taboos of presidential politics. Obama, of course, is the first African American to capture a major party nomination. Clinton is the first woman to contend seriously for the presidency. Obama's nomination and Clinton's near-miss are, in their way, belated fulfillments of the promises of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the Seneca Falls Convention of 1848, and the 19th Amendment. That, of course, was the... uh, Amendment which gave women (laughs) the vote in this country. Yes, uh, something my mother had to fight for. Uh, I think a lot of people have gotten used to this idea already so quickly. It's happened. Uh, Let's face it. um, Women have been fighting for a place at the table, piece of the pie, for a long, long time. Uh, Black males got the vote technically speaking, not really, not in reality, but technically speaking, the Constitution gave them the right to vote after the Civil War. Women did not get the right to vote until after the First World War in 1920. That's, uh, yes, two generations later. So apparently, it's the women last. Anyway, uh, David Remnick, the editor of the New Yorker in Talk of the Town, goes on to talk about the meaning and the emotions of these uh, events, this prolonged race uh, for the Democratic Party to bring these people uh, to the forefront. He goes on to write, the convention suggested the possibility that even with the Bush administration arguably the worst in history, still in power, and with the Republican nominee's poll ratings seeming to pop precisely when he resorts to the tactics of his old nemesis, Karl Rove, the sense of national drift is no longer a novelist's overheated conceit. Anyway, Obama, he says, was careful to keep the mood focused on better days, not to signal despair make plain that the American decline uh in moral terms, in economic and political terms is an undeniable diagnosis. Yes. Ah uh, hope in the face of disaster, I guess. Anyway, uh uh David Remnick goes on to describe as carefully as he can the The discipline of the Obama campaign. um, Talking about the Clintons, all that kind of stuff. Michelle Obama using the irresistible charms of her children, delivering a warm, genuine, impassioned introduction, and so forth and so on. Uh, It is so hard to describe people when they're doing well. He says that John Kerry was uncommonly forceful John Kerry even alighted upon the important subject Obama had left alone, that is, the shame of American torture, the need to shut down the prison at Guantanamo Bay. Anyway, uh, he says that Obama established an imperative for historical change, that that was the theme, and he quotes Obama at length, Oh, yes, it was a Homeric occasion there with the big, the big, um, Coliseum, the football field. (laughs) Anyway, uh, I won't read you Obama's speech. I'm sure that you heard it. It was a promise for the 21st century, uh, and, uh, Remnick goes on to compare it to FDR's speeches, JFK's speeches, uh, Saying that Obama was uh, what is it? I would say a, a little, a little more down to earth, uh, not quite as grandiose. He did not uh, talk about divine justice or the immortal Dante. He did not uh, quote Cromwell, Henry the Second, Lloyd George, <laughs> J.F.K. Uh, was a little florid. Anyway, he he's trying to explain that Barack Obama has modesty down pat. Uh, His call to arms and unity was plaintive and affecting. Basically, he said, quote, we are a better country than this. Yeah, I think that just about covers it. Uh, I don't know how, what is it, how it's possible to point out the errors of this administration and to express the shame that many Americans feel, because, of course, we've been part of it, Uh, without sounding negative, yes. uh, He goes on, David Remnick goes on to say that Obama uh, was not just modest. uh, He talked about his multicultural upbringing, uh... All of the stuff that, let's see, he says he risked the specificity and the length of a Clintonian State of the Union address. (laughs) Anyway, actually, what I like best is that Obama actually got down to questioning his opponent, that is, John McCain's temperament and judgment. And I'm afraid it is time for him to get out his attack dogs and say, say what is. Uh, His serenity and his confidence is all very well, but I'm afraid I'd like to see him rear up and uh, mean business. It is time, yes. Enough is enough, as Obama said. Uh, Let us see if he can come out, uh, take the gloves off and come out fighting. This has been Jennifer Stone. Uh, I've been reading to you from David Remnick's piece in Talk of the Town. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. A discussion on the lessons and vibrant legacy of the year that shook the world. Featuring preeminent left intellectual Manuel Wallerstein, Mexican writer Paco Ignacio Taibo, Angola three political prisoner Robert Hillary King, labor historian Staunton Lind, Balkan radical Andrei Gribacek, and feminist historian Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. The panel will take place at the Julia Morgan Theatre, 2640 College Avenue in Berkeley, at 7 p.m. on Friday, September 19th. Wheelchair access and tickets sold at the door. For more information about this or other 68 events taking place in September, go to KPFA's website, insurrection68.org.